And I think that is one of the ideas behind like, you know, quote unquote, normalizing space, more people going to space or having the opportunity to see spaces because we develop this more like humanitarian outlook on things. You know, we want to help earth. We want to help some of the problems and we don't get kind of as distracted with some of like the things that we think are really big down here. It just kind of puts things in a different perspective. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Impact in the 21st Century, a podcast by Simbi Foundation. If you've listened before, welcome back. If you're new, thanks for tuning in. My name's Aaron and I'm the host of Impact in the 21st Century, which is a podcast that celebrates the impactful work of thought leaders around the world, shares the stories of the inspiring individuals who are behind it, and teases out how we can all lead more impactful lives. I've been looking forward to sharing this episode with you for a while. Today's guest is Alyssa Carson, a space enthusiast, astrobiology undergraduate student at the Florida Institute of Technology, author of So You Want to Be an Astronaut, and a speaker at multiple TED Talks and numerous media outlets. I was excited about this conversation and couldn't wait to ask Alyssa for her insights into when we'll be able to visit Mars, her dreams for astrobiology and farming on Mars, and the positive benefits of space travel has on society, from new innovation to protecting our species. And make sure to stick around to hear Alyssa discuss how she became passionate about space and STEAM education and what we can all do to get started. But before we dive into the episode, I'd like to tell you about the organization behind the creation of this podcast. Simbi Foundation is a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you like the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thanks again for listening. So where are you calling in from? Um, so I'm currently calling in from Florida. So I'm at school at the moment. So I'm originally from Louisiana, but I moved to Florida once I started college. I go to Florida Tech. That is awesome. And before I forget, what are you wearing at the moment? Is it very trendy or is this something, is this a spacesuit? Yeah, so this is one of my flight suits. So um, it's, this one's my plain one. Um, it doesn't really have many like patches or much really going on on it. Um, but I uh, actually got this one when I was over in Iceland doing geology training. So um, that's where I originally got this one. We had to wear it to do all of our hiking and lava tubes and things like that. But um, yeah, jumpsuit makes me look spacey. <laughs> it sure does. What, what is a lava tube? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah. So why I was in Iceland in the first place, um, we did like some geology stuff over there because um, there's been a good bit of research. That's where they did some training and stuff when they originally were going to the moon because a lot of the geology of Iceland was similar to like moon, Mars, rocky, whatever. But basically they're almost like tunnels that had, were carved out from like previous volcanic activity. Um, so like basically that's where like lava used to flow and basically it's solidified into basically these tunnels underground um and that's kind of what it is today and the reason why we are doing that is because there's thoughts of having similar tunnels or like tubes on for example the moon or mars so we are looking if it's possible to actually like put habitats under there and if that would be safer than on the surface so that was a thing that we did over there that sounds awesome so did you actually build little cities and civilizations underground um, so we didn't like fully get to that point. So when I went, we were basically um, doing more of a mapping and kind of was in like the preliminary process of it. So something that we were also looking at before actually putting things underground, it was seen like, is it possible to actually take a section of it and like pressurize it? So basically you would have double layer protection. Like if for example, everything went out in your habitat, well, the area that you're in is also pressurized. So like the astronauts would still have like a extra protection, extra barrier. Um, so that was like, we were doing a lot of like robotic stuff and like mapping. And then, like I said, the geology sites, we're actually seeing how you would, in terms of geology section off an area, yeah. look for like signs of life, for example, like what we'd be doing on Mars. Obviously we were on earth in Iceland, so we found life. So that's good. Um, but it was basically be like, what would you do if it, like you were on the moon or Mars and looking for life? Cool. 
tell me about this, uh, about your call sign, Blueberry. Yeah. So a call sign is kind of like a nickname, but it has to be given to you. Um, and so basically when I was first starting out by going to space camp, I wanted one of like the blue flight suits, the blue little spacesuits, because I wanted to be an astronaut. So I wanted to look like one. Um, but I was a pretty like small child. So I didn't fit in any of the flight suits that they had. So my dad found basically like this knockoff one that like didn't match anyone um, that actually fit me, but it was a very dark, dark shade of blue and it didn't like match anyone. Um, So everyone started calling me Blueberry since I was small and dark blue. And then that just kind of caught on. And then I came back to space camp like again later and they were like, oh, look, Blueberry's back. And it just like never went away. So I just was like, okay, I'll take it as like a little nickname and roll with it. It's an awesome nickname. I love it. (laughs) And so I'm going to give just a brief background about who you are um, to provide our listeners with a little bit more context. Works for me. (laughs) Awesome. So Alyssa is now 20 years old and first became interested in space and landing on other planets when she was three, apparently after watching a cartoon about animals landing on Mars. You've been featured in the documentary, The Mars Generation, and you're the author of an amazing book, So You Want to Be an Astronaut. I understand that when you were nine, you were the first person to complete the Mars, uh, sorry, the NASA passport program, and at the age of 12, became the first person in history to attend all three NASA space camps. By 13, you had given numerous TED Talks, and we'll link them because they're awesome. You also completed your studies in four languages, and I want to learn more about that. So currently, you are an intern um, at an amazing company associated with the Kennedy Space Center. And if I understand correctly, you are studying aeronautical science and astrobiology. Alyssa, anything else that you want to share? Um, uh, that about sums up in as general as possible. Um, but yeah, mainly like as a kid started by just kind of going to like space camps and stuff to learn more about space. I like space, obviously. Um, uh, then 15, I joined Project Possum, started doing more realistic research. So doing spacesuit evaluations, bioastronautics, microgravity campaigns, water survival, that kind of stuff. Um, and that eventually led into studying astrobiology now. Um, which I'm pretty fond of, so happy to have ended up there. Um, and yeah, just continuing to build the resume each day and working on getting to space eventually. Now, can you help me understand what astrobiology really is? Yeah, of course. It is definitely a newer-ish field within the realm of space. Um, So basically, astrobiology is pretty much science in space. So basically, as within astrobiology, you study everything. So you study um, pretty much you take every physics, every chem, every bio, um, and how all the sciences apply to space in some way. Um, Astrobiology definitely can take multiple routes. Obviously, there's like the looking for alien side. There is... um, like the biology side. So you can kind of like take it from different areas. So even though I did settle on astrobiology when I was in college, I still had to figure out what within astrobiology I wanted to do. Um, So for example, me personally, the thing I will likely end up doing will be um, like bacteria microbiology in space. Um, And then eventually connecting that to some of these some of the things that we have going on right now in terms of looking for signs of life on Mars, that would be ideally what I would want to work on. Um, but also really just figuring out bacteria how they're affected in uh, microgravity, what we can learn from that, that sort of stuff. Really interesting. I always thought astrobiology was essentially Matt Damon farming potatoes on Mars. And I mean, it can be that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That's that's the thing. It literally encompasses so much. We have, um, for example, at my university, we have an astrobiology lab. There's multiple, I guess, quote unquote, astrobiology labs, but they did do a, a plant project where they basically were growing tomatoes in a Martian regolith, so simulated Martian soil, and it was a whole project. So it can be trying to be like Matt Damon as well. <laughs> okay. And what would a Martian soil composition, how would that differ from Earth's? 
Yeah. So basically, um, it is our best guess of like the components that build up Mars's soil. So, like for example, plants thrive in uh, in uh, a lot of the soil that we have here on Earth for the most part. Um, there's a lot of nutrients in the Earth's soil, um, whereas like when we find on Mars is very much like dust, rocks, mm. um, not not really as fruitable for like agriculture. So that's been a big thing that, especially more recently, trying to figure out growing different plants in Mars soil. And that's really for long-term, you know, if we're living on Mars, can we grow food in Martian soil? What can we add to the soil that maybe would, um, maybe it's like a fertilizer or something to help plants grow. So that's been a big project as well that, um, that a lot of different people have been looking at. Sounds fascinating. And I have many questions for you on that, as well as you going to Mars, but before we get there, what was the result of your of your study in, in class? Did tomatoes grow on Mars? Um, yeah, so basically that project, it ended up turning into a really big project. It ended up being um, basically the professor that runs that the lab that I'm currently in. It's, it's his project. It's not really my project. I just know a lot about it from him. But he actually ended up partnering with Heinz uh, Ketchup, and it became <laughs> the whole thing of like, Pines can have ketchup on Mars or like Mars ketchup because the tomatoes that were used for the ketchup was technically grown in Mars simulated soil. So it's Mars ketchup. It turned into like this whole thing that I think they're still producing, but it's finally like full, fully public. And we still have a branch of our lab that's still doing um, like space garden kind of thing. So they're continuing to make it better. Um, so, Yeah. You got a really great quote. Um, it goes something along the lines of, our ancestors have explored and made all the world a better place. And the mission to Mars would do the same. We are the Mars generation. Together, we can do anything. And I'm wondering, what, how do you see us going to Mars, moving humanity forward? Yeah. Um, so pretty much like, well, really in general, I guess I'm thinking for space, but also just like in general Mars. I think that we just learned so much from space and a lot of space is setting up for future generations. Um, and I think that that's kind of like the big idea, especially with Mars, you know, we want to get people to Mars to see how realistic it is to live on Mars, to terraform Mars. And of course that living on Mars is not going to be me per se. It's going to be for those future generations, but the way it really comes in and benefits and um, its connection back to earth is that let's say, um, population continues to rise. You know, we would be living on Earth and Mars and we would have more resources that way. And um, also if we're looking at terraforming Mars, you know, there's a lot of things that we'd have to go through cleaning Mars's atmosphere. If we can clean up the entire planet of Mars, we can clean up our own atmosphere and continue to keep Earth um, as healthy as possible. If we are growing food on Mars, then we can take that same idea and maybe grow food in areas on Earth that Aren't, aren't doing as well with agriculture, you know, having more food for people. Um, so there's definitely kind of like this weird connection between space and earth, you know, everything that we do in space comes back. So I think that the idea with going to Mars is like, we're continuing to kind of like think outside the box to solve some of these problems. Yes. Could we clean up earth's atmosphere with never going to Mars? Probably so. But, um, you know, we're kind of coming up with these new technologies by thinking outside the box. And it also has that added benefit of eventually, you know, getting something out of it. But space is definitely the future. So it's always really just continuing to prepare for the next generations. I love that. And, and do you think there's a chance that you will be able in your lifetime to actually settle on Mars? Or do you think just the idea of going is enough? Well, going already sounds like a pretty big adventure. Um, but I mean, being said, you know, by going to Mars, the astronauts are going to have to stay there for a good bit of time before they're able to come back. Um, and that's simply because, you know, sometimes Earth and Mars are close together. Sometimes they're really, really far away, depending on where they are in their orbits. So when astronauts do just go to Mars, they're still going to be living on the planet for a good bit of time. So even with these first missions to Mars, we are getting an idea of what it would be like to live on Mars because the astronauts will have to live there. They'll be doing very normal things. So we'll get an idea as we continue just traveling to the planet. Understood. And I understand that you are optimally suited to go um, in 2033. Is, is that the correct date? Yeah. So that's kind of like what the approximate 
time is at this point. So the idea right now, so for example, like NASA's plans is that they have um, their new program, Artemis, um, and their new rocket, the SLS rocket. So actually the goal is by the late 2020s, we're sending people back to the moon. And by the early 2030s, we're going to Mars. So that's kind of like the idea right now. Obviously those times shift and change all the time with how the space program's going at the moment. That's the goals. Okay. And, and that 2033, that's based on the proximity between Earth and Mars? Um, so a few things. So there are, you know, sometimes that we are looking at that like would be more optimal. So like, for example, in 2033, Mars, the orbits may be slightly closer. So like the planets like shift a little bit on like their general orbit. But um, like we're assuming Mars is going to be relatively close. We're making assumptions on radiation levels. I mean, all of those are a lot of assumptions, meaning that date obviously changes a lot. But um, but that's just kind of like our estimated goal to get there. Okay. And so you would be theoretically going with, with NASA. It, is there any chance that SpaceX headhunts you over to, to fly with them? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm where I am right now. I'm definitely is still a college student, so I am in no position to be applying to be an astronaut at the current moment um, because I have to have a graduate degree. So the uh, good part about where I am at the moment is like my options are pretty wide open. So basically after grad school, I can apply to wherever I want to apply. So it's kind of fascinating how space is changing so much right now, because it's totally true. You know, by the time I'm graduated from grad school, it could be SpaceX has their own astronaut selection process. And they're now having SpaceX astronauts, you know, at the moment, SpaceX is using NASA astronauts, but it could be in the next few years, they develop their own kind of astronaut program. So my options are pretty open. Um, just, I guess, wherever I fit best in the time. Um, but yeah, no, I'm definitely not like fully sold on like have to work at one company. Space is huge. Has, there are literally so many companies that do stuff for space. So um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open. I'd love to understand going from, you know, a three-year-old who's passionate about space and Mars and someone who has a telescope in the room and a poster of Mars to someone who's in their early 20s and is still doing the same thing and has maintained the same level of passion and purpose throughout. Have you ever questioned whether this was the right trajectory for you? How did, and, and how did you get on this path? Yeah, so um, when I was young, I had an interest in space. Um, kind of like what you mentioned, me and my dad's best uh, assumption is that it came from the backyard against that is just because no one in my family has any sort of job that has to do with space or science or anything. My grandmother was in insurance and my dad studied insurance um, and then ended up in freelance videography. So absolutely nothing to do with what I study now. Um, and so it was very bizarre when I had an interest in space and the backyard again, this is the only place we can think of where I would have heard the word Mars. We didn't like talk about Mars at the dinner table. So when I brought it up, it was very out of the blue. Um, but it definitely was an interest of mine. And so it was an interest that I kind of kept the more I learned about space, the more interested I was in space. It was a kind of thing where like, I could easily tell that I was more interested in space. You know, I would be in like in school in history class bored out of my mind but space history was fascinating and I remembered every detail and so kind of along that way I was able to like figure out that like yeah I like space um and at the same time I did what every other kid did you know I wanted to be this I wanted to be that you know but for some reason the way I thought about it was you know I'd be an astronaut go to Mars come back and be a princess or you know, be an astronaut, go to Mars, come back and be a doctor as if like, that's just what I would do afterward. Um, so since I was young and just kind of had these crazy ideas, astronaut or going to space was always first on my list and was really just like what interested me the most. Um, and then uh, kind of the more I went to a space camp when I was young, that was really just figuring out, okay, now what in space do I like? Like, I know I like space. I know it's something to do with space. Um, which I've always had that passion for space, but now more specifically is kind of what's shifted around throughout my life. You know, it was, did I like rockets? Did I like robotics? Did I like engineering? Did I like, you know, science? There's hundreds of different careers you could go into and still work in the space industry. And so that's kind of what I was figuring out throughout my childhood. 
um, realized I did not have an engineering brain. Um, and so that was out. I enjoyed flying, but I didn't necessarily want to be a pilot professionally. That wasn't like what interests me the most. Um, and so it was kind of always trying a lot of different things and then ending up to where I am now with an actual biology and science experimenting. I definitely wanted to be involved in like doing things. Um, so originally I was interested in doing astrophysics. Um, I no longer like physics, so I didn't do that. <laughs> I think a big thing that I learned, especially coming to college was a lot, something, for example, like astrophysics. It sounds so exciting, you know, maybe like studying Jupiter and studying, you know, these wild space things. But in reality, you're like on a computer screen, right? You're running through data on a computer screen because obviously you can't be like standing in front of Jupiter studying it. And so that's kind of what led me to where I am now because I really wanted something in front of me. I wanted something like tangible that I knew could connect to space. And so that's kind of how I ended up liking that kind of microbiology or like the biology side of things because um, actually I was in, I did a microbiology lab for one of my classes that I had to do. And it was what I had seen the most connection to space. So basically they gave us unknown bacteria. We had to run endless, so many different tests on them. And then at the end, we had to say, this is the kind of bacteria I have. And I was thinking, okay, if I was on Mars and I found a random bacteria, I would do the exact same thing. You know, I would run through all these tests, try to classify it as, you know, this kind, this kind, and then figure out what it is. And so um, by doing that, I was like, this is something tangible that I can physically do and see, but I know it has a connection to space. And so that's eventually how I got to where I am now and studying what I like now. But um, I obviously love space. I love all the theoretical and big ideas, but I definitely... For, for me personally, I needed something tangible that I could also like just kind of work on and see happening. I completely understand that. And so along the way, you know, you've been ex exceedingly passionate about space, but along the way, uh, a lot of people have found out about you and your passion and, and the work that you're doing. So you're a student. Yeah, I believe you're in classes right now. Do people recognize you when you go to class? Um. Yeah. Um, not like, not like an absurd amount of people. It's, it's relatively rare, but it's like really funny. Like when it does happen, um, usually like I always call my dad, like, Oh my God, the craziest thing happened. Um, like someone, you know, recognized me. So it is like still weird, like when it happens. So like, it's not like it happens so often. I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, people recognize me. You know, <laughs> definitely still rare. Like what I do is like sciencey spacey. I'm not like, a Kardashian like uh, that everyone knows um but yeah no it it is I definitely do get recognized a little bit um which is uh kind of interesting actually I think it was yesterday I was I had been texting this girl because I was putting in a t-shirt order for like this um for like one of the organizations on campus I had been texting her about t-shirts absolutely nothing else and then out of the blue she was like oh I also heard you're like going to Mars you do so much and I was like how does this random t-shirt lady know me? Um, but there are a few moments, but it's all, it's all good fun. <laughs> Did she give you a going to Mars discount? No, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> and, and so you just fell in love with Mars and have been passionate about it. Is it surprising to you that you're becoming somewhat famous for this passion? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously that was not expected or was not something I was going after. And I mean, even still this day, you know, I, I do have a relatively large platform, but also at the same time, like I have, like, that's not my priority, you know, like the platform is obviously an amazing way for me to engage with kids from all over the world. I'm able to show people what I'm doing and hopefully inspire someone else. But it definitely isn't like my job or, you know, I definitely put time into it now because it's there, but, um, you know, I definitely still keep in mind that like school is kind of number one, any additional space stuff is kind of the second priority. And so I have a lot of other stuff going on. Um, so, you know, there's definitely no, it's just kind of me and my dad, there's no like major strategic social media madness behind anything that I do. Um, especially like 
social media people are like, you have to post once a week. And I'm like, no, like if I'm not doing anything, I'm not going to post anything. Like that's just stupid. So um, I'm definitely just, yep, this is what I'm doing today. Um, and it just kind of is what it is, but I, it was not expected. Originally, I speaking in general was not expected. Um, I kind of got thrown into speaking. I ended up liking it. So that was good, but um, it wasn't even something that I expected from the beginning. Makes sense. Well, you sound genuinely authentic with it and um, I'm sure you'll continue to be in it. It's really beautiful to see. Would you say that on a, on a day-to-day basis, you are training to go to Mars? Is that how you live? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like a day-to-day thing. Um, I mean, like, I guess like in a way, like I'm working towards obviously the ultimate goal of going to Mars in a lot of different ways, but like, um, a lot of the different, I guess, aspects of like quote unquote training that I've done has been through a project possum where, whereas like I've gone most of my, I guess, experience, which is basically nothing that we do is training. We aren't like training to be astronauts. We do research, but the things that we do are still very similar to what astronauts do. Um, and so that's why I've been able to like get a good bit of experience through that, but it's a citizen science research program. So it's pretty much a whole bunch of everyday people who in our free time, we come together and do really cool science and research. But, you know, with them, I've been able to, you know, um, do water survival training with spacesuits, do bioastronautics, spacesuit evaluations, microgravity flights, decompression. Again, a lot of stuff that's really similar to space, but, you know, we're doing it from a research perspective. But um, in that way, I've been able to get a lot of experience um, And that is typically, you know, whenever I have the free time to do that, but I typically try to, you know, stay involved with them and do as much as I can, you know, school willing. Um, But yeah, I mean, for the most part, um, I mean, most astronauts just kind of don't really think about being an astronaut until they're like older. Like, you know, typically they look at the application. Oh, I happen to have those things. So why not apply? So definitely what I've done has kind of been a new perspective on wanting to be an astronaut. Obviously, like I'm not in school studying to be an astronaut because that doesn't exist. But even though I'm doing a lot of other things, I still have in the back of my mind the idea of being an astronaut. And I think that's been kind of the major difference in in sort of quote unquote training to be an astronaut. You know, not that it's an absolute everyday thing, but everything that I do has that as an end goal. And that's just kind of somewhat of a new idea, new perspective about going about being an astronaut. Um, So, you know, the different things I've done has been, you know, to build a resume to one day apply to be an astronaut. Obviously, other aspirations, you know, of being an astrobiologist, I have all of those as well. But the astronaut is still there. And that's kind of a different perspective from what some of the previous astronauts had. Right. So I was reading that in terms of the history of astronauts, many of them start off as fighter pilots. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically when the space program started, it was nothing but fighter pilots. So um, the space program was first coming to be, they were basically looking um, at people that could do the space stuff. And basically the closest thing that we had was, you know, very strict military men who had spent time as test pilots. They were already going through huge extremes in aircraft. So why not just put them in a different extreme of space? Um, and they actually, you know, did a good bit of testings with, um, female, um, pilots as well, but, you know, in the time when the space program started at that time, if a woman had gone to space and died, it would have been like the end of the idea of space. Um, and so that's why it was all really men starting out in the space industry. We eventually, you know, obviously have done a little bit more than that. Um, and, that really was because we were just like testing these explosive machines and we didn't really know anything. But mm-hmm. the point is now where we are in space, you know, yeah, we need the pilots, but yeah, we also need doctors and we need scientists and we need um, people that study a whole bunch of different other things. That's why space used to mainly be military pilots, but now it's such a huge realm of different backgrounds because you can really almost apply anything to space. And that I think is like the ultimate goal really is making space more normal in a way, you know? Um, and my best kind of analogy that I love to use is like when uh, commercial aircraft aircraft first came out, that was just as scary to them as space is to us. I'm sure, you know, flying in the air probably sounded absurd, 
But I think it was like six months after commercial aircraft came out, a baby flew on a commercial aircraft. And here we are 60, 70 years since we first went to space. And there's, you know, we're just now having, you know, an 18 year old go to space. And we're typically the age of astronauts is like 30, 40 years old. And so um, it's kind of getting past this point of like space is obviously much safer than it used to be. And it kind of is normal. And so I think with that, you know, that's one of the goals of space. Understood. And so these, these pilots, they would have been able to handle quite a few, uh, quite have a high G-force, I, I imagine. Yeah. So um, Gs is something that I've had a good bit of experience with. <laughs> so I uh, originally was doing like centrifuges and got up to like 4.2 Gs. Um, but last summer I had a pretty cool opportunity and I got to fly with the Thunderbirds, which is um, like the show team of the U.S. Air Force. Um, and that was exciting. Um, that was my first time in like a fighter jet. So basically what these people used to do all the time and they're very familiar with G's. So I, he asked me actually the pilot that was flying me, he asked me, you know, Oh, how many G's have you done before? I was like, you know, like 4.2 ish. And he was like, Oh, we'll do at least five and take off. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, yeah. So uh, the most that we ended up doing was nine G's. Um, so to put that into perspective, nine G's would be as if nine of you was sitting on top of you. That's the pressure that you're feeling on your body. Um, so at that point in fighter jets, we have to wear G suits because obviously the biggest risk is you passing out. And that's because when you go on those G's, a lot of your blood flow comes down. Um, and so typically if you have blood flow that goes below your eyes and your brain, then you black out. Um, and so we wear G suits, which are basically like pants, but they squeeze your leg. And so um, anytime we went into G's, you could feel, you know, my legs squeezing. And that's just to, like push the blood back up to basically keep you awake. So my experience with G's, um, I, I enjoyed the five, six G's on takeoff. It was very exciting. Um, I think we were going like five, 600 miles an hour. It was absolutely insane. I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever done. Um, but for the actual G part of it, we did a nine G turn. Um, and when I went into nine G's, my vision instantly went down to the size of a bottle cap. So I could probably see like that much, everything else was black. Um, and I just held on to that tiny little circle and I was, they teach you a certain maneuver because obviously it's hard to breathe with that much pressure on your body, but you still have to have some kind of exchange going. You still need you know, oxygen and then exhale. You need some kind of exchange. So they teach you, you know, you have to squeeze your legs. You like squeeze your butt really tight. You're trying to squeeze all those muscles to keep the blood flow up. But also at the same time, you learn like, it's like a, but like, you have to like do like, and then like wait a couple seconds. And then again, so, you know, before we went to the 9G turn, we had to like practice that, but it's basically like a quick K sound um, that we had to repeat. And that way you could, you know, you weren't like inhaling or exhaling deeply. It was a very quick exchange, but you were still gaining oxygen. Um, so I did end up holding on to that little bottle cap and did not pass out. So I was very proud of that. Um, but yeah, at nine G's, you can totally pass out. Um, but they're, especially in the early days of space, I forgot what the guy's name is, but I studied this like crazy dude. He used to like build almost like roller coaster things that would just simulate different G's. I mean, he used to like put himself through like loads of G's and actually astronauts used to have to train up to 16 for the um, Apollo abort system. Um, so astronauts have trained so much. And also to put it a little bit in perspective, so like I did nine Gs in the fighter jet. Typically, like when you see nowadays space tourism, like everyday people now flying in a rocket, they experience three to four. Um, so nothing too crazy. The space shuttle launches, again, maybe six, but typically three to four. Um, nothing is usually that extreme except the abort system because you're trying to get out as fast as possible. Understood. And, and what is the maximum G-force that, that exists? Um, I don't know. I'm pretty sure like the guy who, um, who I was just like referencing that used to do mm -hmm. all kinds of I think he used to like go all the way up to like twenties, like 20 G now he passed out. He wasn't in a G suit. Um, so he used to 
pass out all the time in the different things that he was doing. He was insane. He was basically just putting the human body to different extremes. Um, and I mean, for example, like the Apollo astronauts, 16 G's, there's not too much that you can do at that point to stay awake. Typically you're going to pass out at that point. Um, you're not going to die, which is, you know, the, the point of an abort system, mm -hmm. but, um, it typically, you know, once you get up to that point, there's not too much staying awake. You know, you said something that, that I'd never really considered before. You, you were talking about how we're making space more normal and how when, when, when we're going to space now, this time around, we don't just need astronauts. We need scientists and doctors and, and a host of veterinarians, et cetera. But the, other, the thing that I'd never considered is, you know, we've been on Earth for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And so the systems that are in place are often archaic and problematic um, sometimes male-dominated just because that's how we've been doing things for thousands of years. Do you see Mars as like a 2.0 opportunity to take our more liberal opportunistic thinking and to start again in a better way? Yeah, I think to a degree, yes. Um, however, I like, to, uh, I like to be cautious of thinking of it as like a redo or like a 2.0 version. And the main reason for that is by the idea of colonizing Mars is in no way to replace Earth because then it starts getting like, oh, we have a lot of problems with Earth. Let's run away from those problems and start over, which is obviously like not the goal. Um, the goal, I think, is yes, when we go to Mars to have a better outlook on a lot of things, you know, maybe taking care of Mars better than, you know, taking care of Earth. But at the same time, it's also remembering that like, okay, if we learn how to take care of Mars better, we want to bring that back and also make Earth better at the same time. Um, so I think that it does go both ways. I think that there is a huge learning opportunity. Um, also in general, not to mention just, you know, the quality of Earth, but I think Mars also has a more like human aspect. You know, it's more going to be like humanity going to Mars. And I think that's like the ultimate goal. There's less separation. And that's one of the reasons for the idea behind space tourism is that a lot of astronauts have what's called the overview effect. They go up in space and they see how fragile the Earth's atmosphere is. They see, you know, there's no borders from space. You know, it's a planet and you get to see it in all of its glory. Um, and I think that is one of the ideas behind like, you know, quote unquote, normalizing space. More people going to space or having the opportunity to see spaces because we develop this more like humanitarian outlook on things. You know, we want to help Earth. We want to help some of the problems and we don't get kind of as distracted with some of like the things that we think are really big down here. It just kind of puts things in a different perspective. And so I think that's kind of the goal is like not really, you know, fixing our problems. But now that we have this new perspective of Earth, how do we want to go about living? Um, and so I think that's kind of, you know, with that mentality, we'll kind of take that to Mars. And I think that will the outcome of how we live will be different simply because of that new perspective. And then hopefully we'll be able to share that with as many people for future generations um, so that way they have that new outlook. That was beautifully put. I'm excited to re-listen to what you just said because that is some pretty profound stuff. So can you tell me about our plans to colonize Mars and how we go about terraforming Mars and what that actually means? Yeah, so the idea of terraforming Mars right now obviously is a theory, you know, it's something that we think we will be able to do, but that's one of the reasons why we're looking at sending people to Mars is to kind of get these first missions to Mars are going to be like, okay, we're here now. What is Mars? You know, let's figure everything out and let's see how possible these big ideas that we have are. Um, but, you know, at the moment, some of the ideas is that, you know, we'd have to clean up Mars's atmosphere. Um, there's already a lot of water that we found on Mars. So, you know, by uh, heating up the planet, you know, it could be possible to, you know, have a lot of that water come back up to the surface since a lot of it's ice. So if that water comes back up to the surface, now we're having water on the surface, we'd be thickening up the atmosphere with water 
water, we'd have more of an exchange and then so on. It would continue to develop. So some of the ideas or estimations is that, you know, they think we'd be able to terraform Mars in about 300 years. Um, I think they're thinking it may take a little bit longer than that at that point. So it's very long-term thinking, but also remembering that, you know, the earth took millions of years to become, you know, what we see it as now. And so even the idea of 300 years is almost kind of crazy that we think we could change the, <laughs> the com complete component of a planet in 300 years is pretty insane. But that would almost be the main idea. Obviously, there would be some sort of like living on Mars before that would all happen. Um, but for some of these first missions to Mars, we're really just going to be sending stuff there, a lot of materials beforehand and having a, I guess, more sci-fi colony, you know, where you have to wear a spacesuit every time you walk out the door kind of living. But um, I mean, obviously the ultimate goal would be to have another planet, um, but it is very long-term thinking. And we're still figuring out if that is fully possible. We don't fully know. Um, and that's why we want to get there. And, and on that note, so were, were you saying that we could theoretically terraform Mars and pr provide it with an atmosphere in 300 years? So th that's generally the idea is like, okay. so Mars has an atmosphere, but it's very, very thin. There's not a whole lot of like gases or, um, or compounds that can actually like stay within the planet. And so the idea that they're kind of figuring out, it's like, would it be possible to actually thicken that atmosphere? to the point where like, we're now keeping oxygen within the atmosphere and we're now keeping nitrogen within the atmosphere and, you know, developing what we know of like an atmosphere here on earth that would be habitable. So that's the idea. I think, you know, they're now looking, that's definitely going to be a little bit longer than 300 years, but it's all just kind of a big theory at this point. And also, you know, if we can develop the technology that does all of those things, but uh, yeah, that's kind of one of the goals. Also, it'd be really cool, the aspect that I think is cool, you know, the possibility of bacteria living on Mars. I think that's fascinating if, you know, there are things that have been surviving there. You know, we know of, you know, several extremophiles that we have found on Earth that can live in the extreme environment. So we definitely think that there are things that can live in, for example, the extreme environment of Mars. Um, so I think figuring that out could also be cool. Right. I, I understand that there's some fungi that they think would be able to live on Mars and also what are the, the little, what are the little bears? Yeah. The tardigrades. Yes. Tardigrades. Yeah. So tardigrades are pretty much like what pretty much our most extreme extremophile um, tardigrades are pretty interesting. They just don't die. I don't know. They're, they're pretty incredible. We've had them on the outside of the International Space Station. They can live in space. Pretty much they can put themselves in almost this like hibernation state. Um, and once they get back out of that environment, they can still be alive. Um, but also, you know, on Mars, we have found, you know, water, which is a huge source of life. But we've also found ice. We found liquid water. We have found steam at the equator. Um, so like a warm, steamy environment, pretty good for bacteria. Um, it is a pretty good place that if some sort of organism was there, then like that would be a pretty good place for it to be living. Um, so kind of along with that, we do think that, um, yeah, I mean, tardigrades is a great example of one that yeah, if we just put it on Mars, I'm pretty sure it would be fine. So um, seeing, you know, what else could be there. So what is your dream? Like, let's say 2033 comes. What is your dream job when you get there? Are you searching for, are you going to those distant places to identify and look for bacteria and grow? Yeah. So I think in general, just kind of being one of the scientists on the mission. Um, so you know, when I was learning about different positions as a kid, um, there was like the mission specialists that kind of like sat in the back seat while they like went to space. And then once they got there, they got to, you know, get out and do a spacewalk or do the science. And I was like, yes, like, I just want to sit in the back, you know, wait for me to get there. And then I can like do my thing. And I think, you know, Mars would kind of have that same um, idea of like, yes, you know, the whole bacteria thing, but also just in general, like science, conducting science on Mars, you know, that could be taking soil samples, learning more about the soil composition, you know, from, you know, a real life sample in front of human eyes, or, um, you know, looking for some of the bacteria taking off of maybe what some of the rovers have done, you know, humans are much quicker than rovers. So we would be able to actually learn <laughs> a lot pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, and just in general, any sort of science that could be conducted on the planet, 
Um, also, a lot of that is probably going to be like studying radiation levels on Mars. You know, Mars doesn't really have an atmosphere, so it's prone to a lot more radiation actually getting onto the surface. Um, so there's also that aspect of research that we're going to want to study. Right. And how long will it realistically take you to f- travel to Mars? And then how long would you stay there for your first trip? Yeah. So right now with the current engines that they're looking at sending people to Mars, it's going to be about six months to get from Earth to Mars. Um, and now those engines that they're planning on using are relatively old engines. So there has been development of a newer engine, which would actually be a plasma engine. And that will reduce the time from six months to six weeks. So we do know that we can eventually reduce travel time to Mars down to six weeks. Obviously, as technology gets better, we'll eventually get that even quicker. But um, for right now, the fastest we can do is six weeks. Um, now, for the first missions, we're still you know, seeing we may still have to use those older engines that do take six months. Um, and that's mainly just because it takes a lot of time to tear everything out, put everything back in, test it. By that point, there's already something better. So we kind of eventually have to say, we're going with this. And like, will technology advance? Yes, technology advances very, very quickly. But, you know, we can't constantly be changing stuff. Um, So we'll probably use the six-month engines. And then they're looking at, you know, possibly even living on Mars for like a year. And then obviously the travel time back. So it is going to be a relatively long mission. And that's why those first missions will still have a degree of, learning how to live on Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never realized that we could be traveling to Mars in six weeks, but I mean, it's very similar to traveling from the UK to the US a few hundred years ago. Exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. Wow. You definitely have to have that same perspective. All right. So beyond Mars, what is, what is your vision for Earth? What, what excites you about planet Earth at the moment? Yeah, um, I think in general, just... Um, constantly learning more, you know, I think a huge thing that people reference, you know, obviously we're finding out things about space, but there's still aspects of earth that we're still looking to discover, you know, parts of the ocean or, you know, there's still a lot of exciting things that happen here on earth as well. And I think that is, um, something that will continue to happen. And that's what I mean by like space and earth always being like this mutual thing. You know, we can have space exploration and continue to learn things about earth at the same time, but Yeah, you know, I think um, in general, Earth will continue to develop in its own way. And I think that that's really cool as we continue to develop things for space. Hopefully we'll use those same technologies, you know, down here on Earth. And, you know, even looking at some of the stuff SpaceX is doing um, or companies, you know, that are helping get Internet access in areas that, you know, don't have Internet and have those resources to um, different healthcare, different, you know, education for a lot of different areas, you know. Um, space is kind of constantly connecting back. And so I think that we'll continue to see that to where, you know, more of Earth is connected in a way and um, everyone benefits of, you know, a lot of the amazing things that sometimes we take for granted. Well put. You know, I personally find you deeply inspiring and just your your passion, your purpose and, and your commitment. And I'm wondering whether it is older individuals sitting in the office or a younger student looking to pursue STEM or looking to pursue their dreams. Do you have any advice, anything that's worked well for you that that you would recommend to ensure that you can stay on a career path that you love? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the one of the biggest things is obviously finding something that you are passionate about doing, you know. Um, and I think a big thing to do with that, especially, you know, for kids when they're figuring out what they want to do, that's something I've absolutely enjoyed teaching kids is that you can mix your interests. You know, when we think about space, we think you know, scientist, astronaut, engineer, but, you know, if you like fashion, then you like space, design spacesuits, or, you know, make designer spacesuits, or, you know, like things that are very out of the box can be a reality. And I think that that's so important to teach kids because when kids are in school, they get taught a lot of the same, you know, doctor, teacher, lawyer, which are amazing jobs, but there are definitely (laughs) hundreds of different options of like what you can do. And so I think trying to mold it to something you're going to be most passionate about is what's really going to make you want to put in the work for it. You know, you're going to be interested in it. And also, I love telling kids to think outside the box. You know, if there is um, something that you think sounds crazy, maybe it's not so crazy. You know, with space tourism coming up, maybe we have space flight attendants or, you know, things like that, that at the moment, you know, definitely don't exist. But in the next few years, that could be a very normal job. And so 
it's definitely being able to really think about what you would have fun doing and, you know, possibly putting in the work towards it. Um, but also, you know, I guess advice for actually going after your dream once you find it. Um, obviously having some, some kind of balance is important and that is, you know, whether you want to do something or even just, you know, everyday life, um, you know, if you have a job, maybe it's a goal that you want to work towards a project that you're working on. I mean, definitely having that balance is super important. And I think that's another reason why I've been able to keep my interest in space, because although I do talk about space a lot, it is not all I talk about. And, you know, growing up, I did a lot more than just go to space camp. You know, I did piano, ballet, I played soccer, I did, you know, all sorts of different things um, because I was interested in more than just space, but that also whenever I did have time for space, you know, I was appreciative of that time because this was like my time I could work towards, you know, my interest in space and learn things. So definitely, you know, keeping yourself designated time for different things, you know, as long as you don't burn yourself out, you'll still be super interested in like, oh yeah, I'm eager to work on the next part of what I'm working on. And so that kind of helps keep an interest up and um, having any sort of support system, whether it's, you know, a team or just one person, um, but just having someone encourage you to go after your stuff is obviously really helpful as well. I'm with you. Okay. Speedy questions. One book you'd recommend. I mean, a lot of like the Carl Sagan books are really good for like space, very deeply thought. Um, if you have an interest in uh, like pursuing space, a lot of astronauts write, um, like different biographies. I know, um, like, uh, Leland has one. Um, there's like multiple loads of astronauts that have books, but hearing about their experience is super helpful. So I guess those are people that you can look into. They, they all have multiple books. So any of those. <laughs> and if you were traveling to Mars and you didn't have a TV or any technology and you could only bring one book with you to keep you company, what would that be? If I had one book, I mean, I really, I do, I do think that The Martian is a really good book. Um, obviously, it's turned into something bigger. It's not just a very basic answer. It is a good book. Um, so I mean, that one, I also feel like I'd really just like, like a cool, like space picture book, like, oh, pretty galaxies, you know, I feel like that would entertain, <laughs> entertain me as well. Um, some really cool space pictures are also really fun um, that telescopes have taken. So maybe a little picture book as well. Cool. Speaking of books, where can people buy your book? Yeah, so the book that I have, so you want to be an astronaut, um, it definitely just kind of helps you think through the process of going about your dream and how you can work towards that. And that is on Amazon. Awesome. And I was checking it out. It has lots of five-star reviews and people clearly love it. So I'm going to be getting my hands on that as well. Um, and if people want to follow you. Yeah, for keeping up with things that I do, uh, all of my stuff is under NASA Blueberry and that's NessBlueberry.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of the above, YouTube, whatever you could possibly want. It's all pretty much under NASA Blueberry. Awesome. Alyssa, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and learning from you uh, and getting more passionate about space through the process. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening. We hope you found listening as meaningful as we did. Personally, I loved hearing from Alyssa about microastrology and farming on Mars. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to us on whichever platform you're listening from, and leave us a review or a comment to let us know your favorite moment, or feel free to recommend a guest for a future episode. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. Impact in the 21st Century is a podcast by Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization working in collaboration with the United Nations to enhance access to education in refugee settlements in Uganda. Simbi Foundation builds bright boxes, solar-powered classrooms built from shipping containers that provide educational technology, digital learning materials, and sustainable energy through a microgrid to power entire schools and communities. Feel free to learn more at simbifoundation.org. And if you liked the episode, consider donating to this impactful organization. Thanks again for listening. See you on the next one.